Morning, Bethel. All right, so our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. That's Luke 5, 27 to 32. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 861. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Luke 5, 27 to 32. This is the word of the Lord. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You may have a seat. Good morning again. All right, so we are drawing our study the book of Isaiah to a close. If you're visiting with us, we've been working through Isaiah for quite a while here, and this morning and next week, we're going to finish it up. Um, so you're coming in at the tail end, but man, there's a lot of good stuff here at the tail end. So um, hopefully you'll be encouraged and able to catch enough of the context here for it to make sense. So the, the end of the book of Isaiah focuses on the end of all things. And the depth of this and the scope of this book is just immense. And so it's no surprise that the book ends by giving us this powerful glimpse of the end of all things, um, which for God's people is when things really start getting good. Um, it's really the beginning. But in recent weeks, we last week in particular, we left off with some intense intercession. So this world is broken. It's a mess. It was back then. It still is today. And so Isaiah is crying out. The people of God are crying out, like, how long, O Lord, won't you do something about this and that and the other thing? And so that's what we looked at um, last week. You can see it there in 62.1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Um, maybe I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, if you're not there already, page 621, if you're using the Pew Bible. And then again in verse 6, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Jerusalem as a shorthand for the city of God, the people of God. And so back then, his people were in exile. They're, you know, it's, the world is far from being in good shape. All was not well in the world. Same thing for our situation today. And so they're crying out, do something, look down intervene, save us, help us, rescue us. Um, and then at the end of chapter 64, this is what we looked at last week, um, you see the last verse there at the end of, of 64. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? 
Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And then look back at the beginning of 64, 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So a little bit of context there. What does all that mean? Does that mean that God is kind of aloof and maybe he's just kind of busy in some other corner of the cosmos and he needs to just be woken up or we need to get his attention because he's just disinterested? Do we have to kind of twist his arm, cajole him into responding? Is that what's going on? So after all this pleading... Now God answers in chapter 65. So that's where we're at. Chapter 65 is what we're going to look at this morning, page 623, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible. So let's dive in right there at 65.1. I was ready, God responds, to their pleas, to the, the intense prayer of the last two chapters 65.1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So what's your view of what God is like? Right here, it shows us that God is so humble and loving that he's willing to appear too eager. He doesn't play hard to get. He doesn't play coy. I mean, have you ever known somebody that is like further up the social or economic ladder from you? And in interacting with this person, you realize pretty quickly that you are always the one that has to initiate conversation with them rather than the other way around. Have you ever had that happen? You know what I'm talking about? So there's this aloofness, this distance. Well, guess what? There is no being in the universe who's more influential, more connected, more important than God. And yet, look at him here. So to people who weren't even asking for him, who weren't seeking him, it's like he's jumping up and down saying, here I am, here I am. This is language describing the response of a servant in the Bible. This is echoing that theme. Do you remember back in Genesis 22, don't turn there, but God was testing Abraham, you know, with Isaac, and he calls Abraham's name, and Abraham says, here I am, because Abraham was God's servant, so he responded humbly and immediately. Or in 1 Samuel, when Samuel is, you know, in the... Um, he's there uh, in God's presence, and God calls to him. He says, here I am. Or, do you remember the echo of this in, the, in Isaiah? Who says, here I am, in Isaiah? Isaiah does. Remember, he's the prophet of the Lord, and he sees this vision of the Lord. Their, their king, Uzziah, had died, and so it was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And then he sees the real king. He sees the king of kings. And then he sees, in light of the glory and the holiness of the king, I am unclean. I'm, I'm, I'm toast. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm toast. And instead, the Lord atones for his sin, 
and he knows freedom from that sin and cleansing, and he goes, and, and then, then the Lord says, who am I going to send? Here, here I am, here I am, send me. So God is responding with that kind of language to us. Here I am, he's not hiding from us. He's at the ready. He is attentive and available. He is at our service. That's his attitude. So he's not like the gods of the nations, the idols that need to be kind of wined and dined to keep them happy with you, to get them to bless you. No, God's saying, I'm the initiator. I'm the seeker. I'm the finder. Remember, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. I don't need you. I don't need you to serve me. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So he's not trying to play hard to get. I wonder if you believe that. He wants you to believe that. I know sometimes I have, struggle, have trouble believing that. But this passage, he's saying, I want, you to, I want you to know who I really am. Now, this passage here, Isaiah 65, the beginning of it, is quoted in the New Testament, in Romans. Okay, so Paul's ministry, he had gone to city after city preaching the gospel of Jesus, this good news that God had made a way for sinners to be reconciled so we're separated from God by our sin. We're all guilty. We all know guilt and shame. We know we haven't even kept our own standards, let alone God's. So what's going to bridge that gap? What's going to bring us back to God and reconcile us, make that possible, cleansing and forgiving our sin? How's that possible? It happens through Jesus who came and lived the life that we failed to live, and he died in our place on the cross for our sins. So Paul's out there preaching this. You can have this personal relationship with God, the God who made you, that you rebelled against, but that he came after you. So he would start in the synagogues in these different cities, right, telling the Jews that their Messiah had come and that they should repent and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And he would... Sometimes meet some response, but oftentimes met some resistance, and eventually he would move on to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, everybody else in that city. So why is there so much hardness among his kinsmen and so much more openness among the pagans in these cities? Well, Paul actually found his answer right here in Isaiah 65. So here's what he says in Romans 10, 20 to 21. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he puts that in there. Of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's how verse 2 starts. So there's this stubborn self-righteousness even though God is so available and willing to serve and help and save, there's this stubborn self-righteousness that was characterizing his people. So look at verse 2, second point. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. So, Originally, obviously, Israel, described as this rebellious people. It's like the opposite of what God wanted them to be, 
humble and contrite because he gives grace to the humble. So the problem is not with God. It's not that he's aloof and he's not answering their prayers. The problem was their rebellion. And the same thing can be true of us. We would do well not to hold this off at arm's length, okay? Because it's the people in the church (laughs) that can oftentimes do this same thing. So let's see if any of this resonates. Like, it's so easy to feel sorry for ourselves and feel the victim and think God has dealt us a bad hand. Well, he blesses others, but, you know, me, not so much. And what we end up doing is we minimize our sin and we flatter ourselves when we do that. And we end up slowly but subtly and surely kind of shifting the blame to God. Like, really, the issue is God's let me down. And all the while, we've just become masterful at holding God at arm's length. So he makes it really clear who he is and how available he is and what it means to follow him, like trust and obey. This is clear. But when that obedience is more costly than we're willing to to go, we pull back, we find this kind of comfortable orbit where we can substitute a certain amount of religious observance for obedience, and we kind of just hope that's enough. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, so maybe trusting and obeying, following Jesus as your Savior could look like I need to actually confess and bring out into the open, like deal with something that I'm really ashamed of. And it could have some serious relational fallout. And that scares me to death. And so I'm just going to shrink back to the comfortable orbit. Keep going to church. I'll sign up for a few things. I'll even put a few bucks in the plate. But I'm never going to really deal with that thing because it's too scary to think about what it would look like to actually trust the Lord. Or what about righting a wrong against someone that it could be really humiliating to actually own that? Or forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply and pursuing reconciliation. I'll do these things, but I can't can't go there. And we hold God at arm's length. Or maybe it's just stepping out of our comfort zone and actually being public about our faith, not being ashamed of the gospel. It's just too much. So I'm just going to keep going to church, and it's nice and safe here. And Do you see? Following our own thoughts, our own devices. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. So if, maybe if we just you know, substitute enough of this religious observance, then you know, we've done that for a while, but we've, we've done quite a bit. And you know, I'm entitled to a pretty good life because I've done all this religious observance. And then some suffering comes along and we think God's done us wrong. We think God is the problem. 
But the problem is with our self-made religion, our selectivity, we kind of choose the sacrifices that don't hurt too much. But you know what God says? That's just, it, do you want to you have your own religion? You, like designer religion, you make it up yourself? Or are you going to trust me? Because your man-made religion is basically no different than pagan idolatry. Look at how he goes on. Verse 2 again, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. These are religious folks, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks and who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. This is some of the the kind of paganism of their day. So he's using things that they would understand. We, it might look different from, for us. We eat bacon, for instance. Okay, so who eat pig's flesh? That was unclean back then. All right. And broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, watch this, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. So people who look at other people and look down on them according to their man-made religion. It's like the Pharisee in Luke 18. You remember that? Jesus told the parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And there's two men that go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee. The other's a tax collector. It's viewed like a traitor and just like scum back then. The Pharisee stands there and he, he's so spiritual. God, I thank you. See, he's thanking God. He's not taking credit for this, is he? So, so spiritual. Thank you that i not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who went home justified? The tax collector. So what does God think of that kind of religious elitism and self-righteousness? where we don't like the path that God lays out for us, and so we want to kind of make our own path, self-righteous path. Oh, I can keep my rules. I can keep my rules. And wow, you're obviously not keeping my rules. So I'm better than you? Here's what God thinks of that. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Ray Ortland says it really well. He says, human religion, whatever form it takes, is a mechanism for self-righteous exclusion and sanctimonious comparing and elitism and self-exaltation. It feels holy. It feels pious. But God says it provokes him to his face continually. One of the most important discoveries we must make in all of life is the difference between true holiness and false holiness. We don't always know evil when we get involved in it, especially when it presents itself in a religious form. We must know that God is offended by any religion, however much it may even quote the Bible, that rebels against the authority of his grace and sets its own self-serving preconditions. So put verse 1 alongside verses 2 to 5. Okay, this could be really convicting, but zoom out here for a second and put verse 1 beside verses 2 to 5. He's saying, 
in verse 1, I was ready to be sought. And then verse 2, he says, all the day I held up my hands. <laughs> you remember Jesus in Matthew 23, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were unwilling. So even if we're convicted, if this kind of raises the mirror and we see, oh, this self-righteousness, we can be encouraged because here's the initiator, the seeker, the finder. He's not playing hard to get. Even with self-righteous hypocrites who hold him out at arm's length all day long, he's exposing that so that we can repent, so that we can trust him. But if we keep doing this, that patience doesn't last forever. He'll eventually repay that rebellion. Look at verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. We should shudder at that thought. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the hills and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. So, you know, this is an old text. It's not just a history lesson. This is how God deals with people in every age. He's incredibly gracious. But if we refuse to have him, if we insist on being religious in a way that holds him at arm's length, then we'll eventually meet his judgment. So it happened with these incredibly privileged Israelites. And you know what? It happens all the time with people who grew up in the church. They keep going through the motions, but it's almost like they've been anesthetized to grace. I mean, even to question the reality of their faith, you know, with this privileged spiritual heritage can be deeply offensive. So it doesn't matter even if you're Billy Graham's son or daughter. Self-righteousness is no better than idolatry, than paganism. God hates that self-righteousness. So God will not serve those who don't think they need his service, who hold him at arm's length. C.S. Lewis said this, He claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That is, I take it, the meaning of all those sayings that alarm me most. William Law, in his cool, terrible voice, said, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make, in the end, no difference what you have chosen instead. Those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? If we're in the desert, 
and there is one well of true living water, it doesn't matter if the mirage is the Playboy mirage or the Pharisee mirage. Both of them, you end up with your mouth full of sand. So, if this is true of any of us, again, remember, and this can be to a degree true of all of us, and it's a good warning, and we can recognize it and repent and run to Jesus, but remember the God who's speaking to us this morning. Here I am. (laughs) I'm holding my arms out to you. This is the, the God of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Keep going with that desert image. Come on, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You don't have any money? Great. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love. Remember that text that Tyler read? Scripture reading from Luke 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, so-called, but sinners to repentance. People don't think they need saved, and I can't help you. But if you know that you're a sinner, you are sick, your soul is sick, here I am. So as we reach the conclusion of this incredible book of Isaiah, we've seen the majestic and incredibly merciful character of God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But as we reach the end here, it's very clear that that mercy will not last forever. So there's a great and final sifting and separation that's coming And that's what verses 8 to 15 speak to. Look at point 3. Let's start in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. What in the world does that mean? Well, the picture here is of a cluster of grapes being picked, and it's found that some of the grapes are sour. They're bad. But if there's also good grapes in that cluster, for the sake of those good grapes, you don't destroy them all. So there's discrimination and separation. So look carefully through verses 9 to 12 with me here and note what distinguishes the good grapes in this image from the bad. Verse 9, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servant shall dwell there. I'm going to bring you home. You're going to have an eternal home. Ten, Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. That's one description. The good grapes are people who have actually sought the Lord. Remember Isaiah 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and seek the Lord while he may be found. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion. But, verse 11, look at 65, 11, but you who forsake the Lord, that's the opposite of seeking the Lord, 
you who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, again, this is just pagan idolatry, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. And here's the bottom line of why. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you, you stuck your fingers in your ears. You didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So that's the bottom line problem here. Between the good grapes, the sour grapes, it's they're not listening to God. They've stuck their fingers in their ears. They're not responding to his word. So what's your posture to God and his word and the gospel? Are you responding to it, drinking it in, saying, yes, I am in need of this? Or, you know, I like this much and no farther. Like, I'll just pick and choose what I want and keep you at bay. We dare not be hearers of the word and not doers. Otherwise, we're deceiving ourselves. So here's where all this is headed, this separation, this sifting of those who seek God and those who ignore God. And this isn't just a short little temporary situation. This is really, ultimately, as the book climaxes and ends, a description of what heaven and hell are like. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I mean, there can be temporal, you know, dynamics where this is the case, but ultimately, this points to what heaven and hell are like. My servants shall eat, but you, you who ignore God, shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. That's what you're going to, that's your exchange. So hypocrites who think they belong to the Lord, who think that they're called by his name, if they're holding God at arm's length, they're going to be rejected and cursed. Depart from me, I never knew you, like Jesus said. And the Lord God, verse 15, will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, which if you were here in recent weeks, there's these sweet promises of how God just puts his, his ownership and his identification on his people. He gives them a new name. They used to be, you know, forsaken, but now they are loved and redeemed, the holy people of God. They belong to him. They're his, just like an adopted child who has a new name and a new family with new potential because of this gracious transaction that's taken place. So, just like in the days after the exile, there were these sincere seekers of God and there were these self-righteous hypocrites among the so-called people of God, there's also a mixed bag in the church. I'm not trying to be you know, pessimistic here, like it's 50-50 or something like that, but we just have to be sober and examine ourselves because the wheat and the tares grow up together, right? And the day of separation is coming, and we all ought to examine ourselves humbly, be honest with ourselves, and seek the Lord sincerely, without any reservations, without any conditions. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, who've rejected that self-righteousness and 
embrace the gift of salvation by faith, who are living openly and honestly and responsively to the Word of God, not perfectly, but sincerely, the promises that await us are just awesome. They ought to just thrill us and fill us with joy inexpressible and a living hope. So last point, is everything sad going to come untrue when all things are made new? Um, the last 10 verses or so here. So what's, what's the future look like, future hope of those who trust in God through Christ? Um, look first at verses 16 to 19. Uh, actually, we're going we're gonna to look, we're going to focus on 16 to 19, but I want you to look quickly at 20 to 25, and then we'll back up and look at 16 to 19. So if you were to use our experiences, painful experiences, to paint a picture of what's not going to be present in the new creation, what kind of things would you use? Okay, so Isaiah is using some poetic language, some images to get at what all things made new looks like. So if you were talking to people who had lost babies just a couple days old, what would you say to them about what it's like when all things are made new. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it, in the new creation, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Again, this is, you got to realize this is poetic language. It's a poetic picture of the new creation. Let me read Alec Motier's comment here. It'll help, I think. As usual, Isaiah is using features of life as we know it to suggest the coming bliss. Thus, no infant mortality, no premature death. Indeed, a centenarian, 100-year-old person, would be considered to be in his youth. But there is no escape for the sinner. Even should he live to be 100, the curse will catch him. Okay, that's the image here. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. No futility. No loss, no threats, no threats of theft, long life, security, fruitfulness, blessing. That's what these images are getting at. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. How much of this life is waiting on the Lord as we struggle to fight the good fight of the faith? No, in the new heavens and the new earth, before we even call out, he's going to answer because we're going to be face to face with him. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. There's no more testing of our faith. Our faith is going to become sight. And then verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Same picture as in Isaiah 11. Universal peace and safety. This is paradise restored. And then back to verses 16 through 19. Look at it there. 
So he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Why? Because there's not going to be any other gods to swear by. Everyone's going to worship the one true God. So when all things are made new, everyone who seeks blessing will seek it from the God of truth, the only, the only God. And then look how it goes on. Because the former troubles are forgotten. And the former troubles are hidden from my eyes, God's eyes. Why? Because behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. Again, think city of God, city of man, in like a big metaphorical sense, God's people. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the crying of distress. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain anymore. Okay, so, you know I love The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien and I think some others of you do as well. In the last book, after the... This is a spoiler, sorry, for some of you who haven't read it. Um, oh, well, you still should read it. Um, so after the ring of power has been destroyed at great cost to its bearers, Frodo and Sam go together, and they nearly die in the aftermath, and in fact they're unconscious, unconscious, as you know, things are crumbling and they think they're just going to die, they, they go unconscious, but they're, they're rescued by the eagles, the great eagles, and they wake up in this idyllic land of the elves. And Sam Gamgee, the faithful companion of Frodo, who was the actual bearer of the ring, he wakes up and he finds surprise after surprise. Let me read from the end here. Gandalf, okay, he's the great wizard that was... Uh, among the fellowship of the ring. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. So I love that section, but also I'm a little bit hesitant to totally embrace it, right? How can, how can everything sad come untrue? That's not possible. Well, do you hear what he's saying? Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Will everything come untrue? Because those two things just came untrue. <laughs> so the point of what he's saying is, is everything sad going to be completely undone? Well, yes, in that sense, he's exactly right. Our hope is not just all the good things coming true. It's also all the bad things coming undone. Or, if you like, and I like it, 
all the sad things coming untrue, when all things are made new. So all of our formal troubles will be forgotten. All the brokenness and suffering in your life, beginning to end, in this fallen world will be forgotten and not even come to mind. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm quoting him again here, some say of certain forms of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So this world can be like a bad dream. Like a nightmare at times, right? I mean, just think of your worst. Have you ever had one of these recurring nightmares? Think of it. And it can be so real. And you wake up in a cold sweat, but you, you wake up and it's over. And no, that, it, that's not what's true. Weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the great morning is coming. That's what Isaiah 65 is telling us. Listen to Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov, and we'll be finishing up with this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for and will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That's not a pipe dream, folks. He's echoing Romans 8.18. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. On the day when everything sad will be forgotten when all things are made new. When we hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Looking forward to that day? It's coming. We have a living hope that can't be killed by anyone or anything, not even Tuesday. This is all going to be true on Wednesday morning, no matter what happens. And the new creation began at the ratification of the new covenant. And so now, as we come to the table, we can feed on the grace that bought us all these promises, that one day, everything sad is going to be completely forgotten, and we are going 
to have no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. We are going to see God face to face, and everything is going to be made new. So don't you want to proclaim his death until he comes as we look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb and the renewal of all things? We eat in anticipation of that. We also eat reminding of ourselves of the need for the grace to continue to become new. <laughs> like we hold God at arm's length. We, we wander from the one who loves us and gives us true spiritual food. We're idiots for it, but we do, and we can feed on his grace as he continues to make us new until the day when he makes all things new. So for all the stuff that you've been convicted about this morning, the mess of this past week, and I'm chief of sinners, we can feed on his grace and say, oh, I'm so glad that that old stuff is paid for. And tomorrow is a new day. And his mercies are going to be new because they're blood-bought. And he's going to keep giving me new mercies until he makes all things new. So let's eat, strengthened by his grace in anticipation of his promises and the renewal of all things. So if musicians can come on up and the guys who are going to serve at the table can come up as well. If you have seen your sin, whether that was of the Playboy version or the Pharisee version or a little bit of both, and you've forsaken it and you've run to Jesus as your Savior and you're trusting in him, then this table is for you. If you're here and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, if you've got questions, it's okay. We're glad you're here. If there's any way we can serve you or, or talk through some of your questions, we'd love to do that. But just let the elements pass. There's no magical grace, um, you know, just by eating bread and some juice. Uh, but again, for those of you who are trusting in Jesus, eat and drink in this grace and let it just awaken anticipation for the day when all things are made new. Let's pray, and then we'll participate together. We'll serve everyone, both the bread and the cup, and then we'll participate together. Oh, God, we thank you that you are the God of creation, and even though we have messed it up, you are the God of recreation. And Jesus was undone and cursed for us so that we could be remade and made new. And we thank you that also you are going to make all things new. So help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and keep following him all the way home, all the way till he makes all things new. And I pray that we would feed on your grace your body broken, your blood spilled to give us everything that we need between now and when he returns and sets everything to rights and makes it all new. In his precious and powerful name we pray, amen.